price we stand. Amen. He has purchased us with his blood. He has given us life in his name. And all who look to the Lord Jesus will be saved. Uh, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. This word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it cuts to penetrate soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And indeed, as we read and as we meditate on this passage, we believe that God will use it to change our lives. This is God's word, 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is God's word. May I add his blessing to the reading of it. You may be seated. And play, pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, as we come to you, Father, under your word, Father, for we live under your word, we ask that you would teach us from your word. God, the Christian life is one that you call a diligent pursuit of you. And Father, as we meditate on this passage, we need to reflect on our own call to pursue you. So Father, to weigh out how is it we're following you and how is it that we're called to? So give grace, give mercy, give understanding as we work through this passage. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many Christians do not live uh, vibrantly in the Christian life that they have. Uh, many are not, in a lot of ways, not blessing others or, or even honoring God. There are times there are Christians who profess faith in Christ who won't persevere until the end. And that's why the Bible at various times compares the Christian life with a race. We see that in our passage today. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 starts off this way. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. He compares the Christian life with a race in this passage. One of the things that begins to make life feel normal again after this pandemic has gone through us is the reemergence of sports professional sports, and, and maybe even this year, the return of the Olympics. They are scheduled for Japan later this year, and when I checked it, they hadn't been canceled yet. You know, but these times where we see athletes competing, we see the competitions going on, and we see all the conversation around those things, it gives us a, a distraction, something to look at, something to pay attention to, which is a little different outside of the day-to-day. -day. It's really amazing to watch an athlete in action. Uh, when we see their natural talent coming together with their, with their training and their discipline, it comes forward as these athletes go forward to win the game or to win the medal, whatever it is that they're, they're before them. It's, it's really a spectacle to watch. Now, our passage gives us a little glimpse here of seeing a connection between athletic skill and the Christian life. Because many of the same things that would make an athlete successful in their work will make a Christian successful in the, and fruitful in the Christian life. This book of 1 Corinthians was originally written again as a letter. It was a letter that was written from the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Corinth. Corinth was a city that was in modern-day Greece. 
They've been started about three years before this letter was written. And he was writing them to address a number of issues that were going on in the church. And one of the issues that was going on was a number of the Christians were continuing to go to the pagan temples. These participation in these pagan temples was fairly common because it was part of the, the kind of community life where the local gods would have a sacrifice offered to them and then on the remains that the people would eat and have a, have a dinner together. And so they would participate in this. And while the Apostle Paul has told them that this sort of behavior is incompatible with the Christian life, is that some of them were trying to justify themselves. They were trying to say why this is something that is an okay thing to do. Because they'd become Christians. They'd realize that there are no other gods other than the one God who Jesus Christ has revealed. They learned that Zeus is nothing, and Aphrodite is nothing, and, and all these other gods that are there, they aren't really anything. So when a person prays to an idol or offers a sacrifice to an idol, it's really offering it to nothing. It's just air. It's, it's, it's just an idea that someone had. The Apostle Paul is spending chapter 8, chapter 9, even chapter 10, two more sermons, addressing this issue, but addressing it in a number of ways, and ways which are helpful and instructive to us as we think through our Christian life. And we see this week, we'll see a little bit more next week, is the callous attitude that they had towards this behavior. And so the Apostle Paul, he takes this illustration of a race, and he shows that you have to think of yourself as part of a race, where there's a finish that you're moving towards, and you can be disqualified, you can go off that track if through sin, through focusing on the wrong things, through steering away from Christ and into sin, into love of this world. And we've seen that happen through history. People have abandoned the faith and turned their back upon Christ. Now, the illustration of an Olympic Games, or the sort of games, would be relevant to the Corinthian people just outside of their city. Every couple of years, they would have their own sort of Olympic Games. It was a regional contest of athletic skill and prowess, and it was called the Isthmian Games. So every two years, they'd have that with all the, the competitions, the awards that went along with that. And so he uses this understood illustration to challenge them to finish the race, to get that reward that's out there, and to pursue that way, and, and to set aside some of the things which were distracting them and leaving them aimless. They were in a path of spiritual compromise. They were moving away from God instead of moving towards God. There was unfruitfulness, there was waste inside of it, and he's calling them to a vibrant and a vital Christian life. Now, if we look at verse 24 again, we're reminded that the, the Christian life is a race with a reward. Reward's a little bit different in this case, because if we usually think of a 100-meter sprint, we think that only one is going to get that reward, right? Well, the good news of the gospel is that more than one person will receive the reward, Part of the reason for that is because only one person truly deserved that reward. All of, all of us, the Bible sinned, have fallen short of the glory of God. We've sinned against God, but one person perfectly fulfilled righteousness, perfectly did what was required of him. That was Jesus. He's the one who finished the race. He's the one who crossed the line. And all those who believe in him get his reward, not the justice that they deserve. They get his reward. That's the gospel of grace. I was thinking, as I was meditating on this idea of reward, of the idea of participation trophies. 
You know what a participation trophy is? A participation trophy is something that you get just for going to a sport and event. Now, you, you usually get a participation trophy not because you actually win anything or accomplish anything, but just because you participated. If you're a kid, sometimes you get a participation trophy because your parents signed you up. It's kind of like their trophy for you uh, that, that they gave to you. Now, I'm of a generation and others of a generation that can be a little sarcastic and cynical towards that, right? And you think, you know, if you get an award, you have to, you have to earn it, right? You have to deserve it. You win, actually win something. But we see in the reward that's given in the Christian life, it's really something that comes by grace. It comes sort of a, by a participation. In this case, it's a participation in Jesus Christ. As we believe in Christ, we participate in Christ, and we get the reward of which Christ has earned, the one that Christ has deserved himself. You know, we have to understand that if we are going to understand grace. There is grace that is given to us for things that we don't earn or deserve but being part of something. So all, he says and points to in this, who persevere in the faith to the end will receive that prize. The point is that there really is a reward. It's not a reward that's given for the best runners for the best competitors, those who can somehow prove that they deserve this grace, but it is ones that are given to those who persevere by faith in Christ, continue to trust him for his grace. That doesn't mean that it's going to be easy because we're surrounded by temptations. Some of them are out there, right? But some of them are in here. The Bible talks about our flesh, our flesh that is in rebellion against God. It wants to sin, and many of us will give up along the way. They just give up the pursuit of Christ showing that they never truly had faith to begin with. And so Paul's warning to the Corinthians is to persevere. How do we not become one of those? How do we not become a casualty, those who compromise their testimony or, or abandon the faith? It's hard to see professing Christians give up, those who fail to reach the goal line, and to the Corinthians... They're getting wrapped up in sexual immorality. They're getting wrapped up in idolatry. They're getting wrapped up in complaining and internal divisions which are going on there. And many, we can see that many, even today, would come up short for those same sort of reasons. Getting wrapped up in all this world and missing the end. The challenge we see in Mark chapter 14 is the difficulty of the Christian life when we see Jesus speaking to his own disciples. He tells them that the Christian life is going to be difficult for them, but his disciples don't quite believe that it's going to be as hard as he says it's going to be. Speaking of his arrest and his crucifixion, he says to them, you all will fall away, for it is written, I will strike the sheep and the shepherd will be scattered, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though all fall away, I will not. And Jesus says, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. We know what happens after that. Peter does deny him three times. The, the other apostles abandon him. Judas has betrayed him. Can it happen to us as well? Of course it can. See, when people are faced with difficulty, they respond in different ways. Some take control away from Jesus. They say, like, Jesus, I'll take that steering wheel away from you, and um, thank you very much, I got this now, and instead of going the way that Christ would have us to go, they go their own way. Others may go into cruise control mode, 
cruise control doesn't work. We are in a spiritual battle. It's a battle which requires acceleration, which requires breaking in the pursuit of Christ. What does it take to get our hearts fixed on this prize? I think the scripture throughout points to the key thing to be devotion. It's our hearts, that our hearts would be warm towards Christ, that we'd love Jesus for what he has done and what he has done for us in the cross. That we have this love for God who is our creator, our maker, the one who's blessed us in so many ways. Now today we're going to talk a lot about discipline, but we always remember that it's devotion that leads the way. Devotion that leads the way way before discipline. Sometimes we think that if we just do enough things, just read our Bible enough, just pray enough, well then the joy of the Christian life will be ours. That doesn't work that way because devotion is more important than discipline. Our heart is more important than habit. We need that changed heart. When, when Jesus becomes that chief aim, our chief love, our chief desire, when our hearts are warm towards him, when we're most open to his word, then we find the grace of enjoying God. So devotion leads, but discipline follows. Discipline is the response to devotion. And we know that because when we love someone, we tend to organize our lives around that person. When we fall in love with someone, it's not a difficult time, thing to spend time around them. In fact, we want it. We desire it. We organize our lives around it. Whatever we love, we'll tend to organize our lives around, whether it's money, pleasure, family. Discipline is the response to devotion. And if we love the Lord... That we structure our lives around service to him. That's natural. That's why the Bible says, rejoice in the Lord. And while devotion may seem simple, it's the kind of simplicity that says, my greatest need, my greatest desire, the greatest thing that strengthens me for life in this world is God and his presence in my life. It's a relationship that structures my discipline. So what I want to do today is look at that kind of discipline that helps devotion. What kind of discipline helps that devotion life, that heart for Christ? Because as the apostle writes this, he's gearing their hearts back towards Jesus. Three things we want to look at. It's the discipline of habit, the discipline of intentionality, and the discipline of hope. Habit, intentionality, and hope. So the first thing we see in verse 25 is this discipline of hope. The apostle Paul goes on with the illustration of a runner to remind us what's required to win. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. All of those who compete in Olympic games, um, professional sports, you know, any of those sort of things have to go through an extreme regimen of preparation. It affects how they train, how they spend their time, how they eat, and how they sleep. You know, I marvel at like somebody like Tom Brady. I mean, Tom Brady is not much younger than me, and he's taken hits that I would never want to take. Um, you know, he's still successful at something like that. I, it's just phenomenal to see that a person could continue on like that. And I was looking at what it takes to succeed at something like that, and I looked at his diet, you know, and the diet he has to go through, reading the exercise regimen he has to go through, even the sleep schedule. You know, he needs to get nine hours of sleep a night. I think he goes to bed at 9 p.m. every, every night and, and sleeps well. I was pointing me towards LeBron James. LeBron James, the great basketball player. 
you know, I don't know if you know this, but he gets about nine hours of sleep every night, and then he takes a three-hour nap every day. So for his success, right, it's 12 hours of sleep in order to be successful in the thing that he does. Wouldn't you like a job like that, right? My job demands of me. I get 12 hours of sleep every day. Well, that's the sort of discipline that, you know, that level of athletics takes. Requires attention to all parts of our lives. In fact, really, every area of our life requires a level of attention. Our education, our work life, our family life. You know, these things take self-control, discipline to be successful. Building our time right, even, even our sleep schedule right. Well, in verse 25, he shows that it's the spiritual life as well. Now, why would they go on in this extreme exercise, diets, sleep regimen? Why would an athlete do that? Paul goes on to say it's to receive a perishable wreath. If I understand it right, uh, at these Isthmian games, again, just outside the city of Corinth, whenever somebody would win a race, they were the champion, they were given a crown, a wreath, in order to celebrate their victory. But it was made out of celery. Now, I don't know if you like eating celery. I don't like eating celery unless it has lots of peanut butter on top of it. And if you know celery well, it goes bad pretty quick if it's laid out. So you can see just how perishable that wreath really was. Even today, you know, modern day Olympians or, or people who win professional sports things, they get a ring or they get a medal, but those aren't really things you can spend. Um, you know, eventually a record falls. Somebody else is going to be the winner next year. Um, this is, there's a sort of things that just don't follow us after we die. You know, there's a temporary victory, and it needs to be followed up by other successes that come on later in life. My dad would have this saying to me. He said, you see that vending machine over there? You know, your high school championship plus $1.50 will get you a Coke. In other words, there's something that has to follow on after that. Now, the end of the Christian life, the end of it, is an imperishable reward. Something more valuable than anything that we can imagine. Something that cannot be taken away. Talking about heaven talking about glory, talking about the presence of the Lord, talking about the presence of God's people without stain or violence that goes on forever and ever. And just thinking about eternity ought to warm our hearts. Just thinking the length of it. What is it that we're moving towards? And it's not just relevant after we die. It's extremely necessary for this life. For joy and love and peace, those are all wrapped up in the eternal life that Jesus Christ gives. Where does vibrant Christian living come? But in a heart that's, dev- that's devoted to Christ. And so the habits that we choose, they can make an enormous difference. The Apostle Paul was not going to make part of his habits or part of his activities going to an idolatrous temple. He knows the compromise that it would make. He knows what it would mean for his own soul as well as for his own witness. He sees a spiritual danger inside of it. You know, athletes, they can have a bad diet going into a race. They're inattentive to the little things, like what they eat, they're not going to be able to finish. Let's say you have a marathon, you're going to be running tomorrow. Maybe you think, Sean, I see you're not going to be running a marathon tomorrow, but, you know, I might be able to. But, you know, before you run a marathon, you're not going to eat a gigantic pizza the night before, stuffing yourself full because, you know, you don't eat right, you're just not going to make it. I heard about an NFL quarterback, and the night before he was going to the Super Bowl, is he had a big night drinking 
got drunk, and ended up throwing up inside of the huddle the next day because he felt so sick. Needless to say, his team didn't appreciate his night partying because they didn't win the game. It was an attentive to, attentiveness to what was before him. See, the actions we choose make a difference. We cannot think that we will indulge the flesh and will still lead a successful Christian life or any life to have joy in it. Actions reinforce themselves. They become habits. It's been said, we sow a thought and we reap an action. We sow an action and we reap a habit. We sow a habit and we reap a character. We sow a character and we reap a destiny. So what we see, what we say, who we're with, what we do, they form a foundation of other future behaviors. And maybe some of you, you have a habit that you know is destroying you. It's not bringing joyful Christian life. It's not pointing you towards the Lord. Maybe it's a person that you know that you shouldn't be spending time with, but you continue to do so. Maybe it's the things that you're spending time doing or the things you're spending time looking at. Maybe the way that you compromise in your integrity. Could be a wrong relationship with alcohol or letting violence or sex into your, into your eyes, into your mind, through the things that you listen to or the things that you watch. Maybe it's the language that you're choosing or, or maybe just beginning to choose. All those become foundations for our behavior. I don't know if you've seen that Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma. It shows the way that social media affects us, affects the way that we think. And it shows how those who design these social media platforms use artificial intelligence and, and all these things in order to grab our attention and, and to bring us into that world. And, and it, you know, it says, oh, wow, this person seems like this. We'll give them more of that. And before long, you know, we can see that I intended to spend 10 minutes on Facebook and then I spent 30 minutes or an hour. Maybe you wasted time like that and just wondered, where did all that time go? Well, it also points to the fact that when this message kind of goes back and forth, reinforcing things that we're already looking for, it tends to put people into, you know, vortex, which for some people, these people into conspiracy theories, open to paranoia, open to greater fear and anxiety, become alienated from others, begin to see others as, as enemies. You know, those sort of things strip away that vibrancy of life. The whole thing is built, you know, the whole thing is built to, to give us those habits. You know, it's a, it's a movie that's worth watching if you haven't already, The Social Dilemma on, on Netflix, um, because it commends to certain other things. It commends us to less social media, less posting, and talking to people more. I remember I had to make some decisions just to get the stuff off my phone where it's so tempting to be on because I realized the vortex it can bring me into. You know, and I'm happier for it. I know some of you have stopped doing it as well, and you've told me you're happier for it as well. You know, and part of that, again, our habits reinforce a way of thinking and a way of living. We don't want to miss this prize. So what do we do? We choose habits. We choose habits to ground us in devotion to Christ. Habits that steer us towards truth. Talk about three of them. The first thing, habit that ground us in our devotion to Christ is to, to flee temptation, right? Because it's our temptation or the, the temptation we've indulged in in our sin that is leading us away from that devotion, our love for Christ. That's why we confess our sins. That's why we seek forgiveness. That's why we find accountability. The first discipline we're going to do, the first habit 
is to strip away those things, as Hebrews chapter 12 says, that, that entangle us from our pursuit of Jesus. But secondly, we need to raise that, that heart affection by daily going to Christ. You know, we need time in the Bible. We need time in the ministry of the word at church. That's why this day is, is so valuable. People have used, used to call it the market day of the soul. The idea was that, you know, we go to the market to buy food to feed our bodies, right? And so we buy food and we cook it up and then we eat and, and, and we do well and we're healthier. Well, it's a market day of the soul. It's a day that we come to the Lord's house where we're spiritually strengthened. We renew our souls in the word of God and strengthen us for the call that God has for us. That's why people thought morning and evening worship is so important. to gear our minds and our hearts around the Lord. We need the word of the Lord in the week. That's why we have care groups in the week. That's why we built this devotional we have available in the foyer. You know, time for our families individually to get in God's word because it, and the goal is let's raise our heart towards Christ. Let's continue to seek him in inside of his word and let's build up habits which begin to stimulate that. It's been said that the Bible is the book that will keep you from sin or that sin will keep you from this book because that, this is a source of life. This is God's word. If we want to increase our devotion to Christ, we need time in a word. We need time in prayer. And thirdly, though, we need to be with other Christians. If we've seen anything during this pandemic, we have seen the cost of isolation. It's in the loneliness. It's in the isolation. And it's in the consequences of fear and anxiety and even gullibility that comes in through this. Community grounds us in God's word, it grounds us in our convictions, it grounds us in our identity, grounds us in our history, grounds us in our traditions, it forms our identity. It's a reminder to us that Christ is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God and his church is secure. Fellowship helps us to keep our eyes on Christ, to uncover the lies, to uncover the fears, to uncover the anxieties that drag us down and to put our hope in him. That's how we cheer one another on. That's how we cheer one another on to cross that finish line. That's why Hebrews 10.25 says that we must not give up meeting together. Look what it says. It says, do not give up or do not neglect meeting together. as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is where many of the great casualties of what's happened in this pandemic have occurred. Churches closing down, members forsaking assembly together, there's a negative spiritual impact upon the lives of God's people. More susceptible to falsehood. More open to temptation. It's not a grand conspiracy going on, but it is a spiritual danger. If we want to preserve and persevere in the truth, we need good community. Christ-centered, biblically-based community, one that reinforces the truth in teaching and in worship. I'm reading this book by Rod Dreher called Live Not By Lies, and it's quite a, a book on um, telling some of the totalitarian um, oppression that's happened inside the USSR and the Soviet bloc countries, especially in East, Eastern Europe. You know, it talks, there's this whole section on suffering and difficulty that, that many Christians faced. One of the most inspirational but really hard stories, too, is the story of a number of priests who found great community in their arrest. They encouraged each other while they're in prison. 
Because that's what they, the religious leaders would be. These priests would be gathered up and put in jail. There was a case where they brought 30, case out, 30 priests out into a swamp. They put them on their knees, execution style, and asked them, do you believe in God? And when the first one said yes, he was killed, murdered. The second one said yes, and he was also killed all the way down to 30 priests who were all killed in that. As we look at it today, you know, we don't look at it as, as an awful waste of life. We look at it as a horrendous and a heinous evil, which is perpetrated on them. We see inside of their lives courage and conviction, holding firm even when the threat of their lives. The world is not worthy of them and their profession of Christ. Well, how is it that they stood? And their courage came out of their fellowship with one another. The one who didn't stand in it was the prison guard, carrying forth the monstrosity of his actions in the years to come, even going crazy, literally crazy, from his participation in this event. See, if we're going to stand, we need to be with other believers. You know, it's not just a luxury for us, it's a necessity. It is something commanded by God for a very important reason. Come to church, be involved with care group, make friends, walk in Christ. You know, we see the importance of the discipline of habit for keeping our hearts devoted to Christ. Well, the second thing we want to look at is the discipline of intentionality. Intentionality. We see in verse 26, so I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air. When we really love something, again, uh, we tend to be very serious about it. We see this in the life of the Apostle Paul, the way he treats his time, the way he deals with his own thinking. He sees, we see his purposefulness, his intentionality, and all that he did. He is in the race. People don't even... Some people don't even get in the race. They're aimless. They don't know the Lord. They're not pursuing righteousness or goodness. They're doing a lot of things, but they don't really, if they think about it, know why they're doing the things that they're doing. Even if they appear very busy, even if they feel very agitated, very active, they're like a person fighting the air. Even in that valiancy, outside of knowledge of the Lord and commitment to him, is being outside the fight and accomplishing little other than a show for others. We ought to know that we're, unless we're actually in this competition, there is no way to win the prize. You've got to be in it. You have to be intentionally in the race, in the fight, in the game. It starts with knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Do you know him? Are you in this game? Have you confessed your sins, repented of them, and trusted him as your Lord and Savior? The Apostle Paul, he's in the race He's doing something. You know, I have in my mind this image of the Apostle Paul running this race. He's a marathon runner. He's doing his 26 miles. He's knowing if he doesn't finish the race and finish, he's not going to get the prize. So he's focused. There's an intentionality about what he does. The other image he gives us here is a boxer. He's not shadow boxing, you know, showing us how powerful he is and beating the air. He's not put on his show for others. No, he is a, has a real opponent. Somebody he's really sparring against. Somebody who wants to knock him down, who wants to take him out. There's no prize unless he perseveres inside of that. See, the Apostle Paul wasn't a runner or a boxer, but he was an apostle. And the work that he did, he was diligent in doing. He preached the gospel. He trained his mind. He endured the challenges and even the suffering that was before him. He was winning people to Christ and loving them and serving and blessing God. He was not an armchair quarterback, somebody outside the ring watching the game, telling his wife and, and friends everything that the quarterback needs to win that game. No, he's in it. 
He's the one making the call, making the adjustment, because he's in it, and that's what he has to do. Now, the Corinthians, who he's writing this letter to, they're the ones who are treating life like the armchair quarterback, or like they're watching a boxing match. Paul's really telling them, you're not in the, you know, you're in the match, you're in the ring, but you're not in the game. And you're losing. The KO is coming, you don't even see it because you're playing around with sin. You don't realize that you're going to lose. So there's a discipline that comes to our intentionality. There's a a necessity to, to get involved. There's a necessity to do something. The Apostle Paul gives us that example. How much of what we do is purposelessness, is purposeless or aimless? Or do we see that God has a real call upon our lives, that we are in a spiritual battle, that the world, the flesh, and the devil all want to consume that spiritual life? There are spiritual forces of evil that do not want to see Jesus Christ made known in the world. The devil wants all the glory to himself. But you don't need to be consumed in that. Be sure that you're in the race. Be sure that you're in the ring. There's an intentionality to the decisions that we make about the Bible about reading, about our time, about worship. In Ephesians 5.16, the scripture says, make the best use of of your time because the days are evil. And our lives are short. Our time with our kids is short. Our preparation for the next life will be over before you know it. The time you have for education will not last forever. So the question is, will you use the time that God has given to you to glorify him with your life? We grow in a way to give him worship and, and honor. We grow in your doctrine. We grow in your faith. You can address the issues and challenges that are before us and before you. One part of intentionality is service. It's getting involved in serving the Lord. Because it's oftentimes that we don't realize how much we need God until we put ourselves in a place of need of God. Teachers often see this. You know, they love learning and they think, well, I'm going to go... Um, you know, I've learned a lot of things, so I'm going to go teach other people that. When I were to teach a class, what do you got to do? You got to study and you got to learn. And so, so teachers end up uh, learning more and more about the things that they're, they're going to teach. And so, you know, they realize, wow, I'm sharing things with my students, but I'm learning, I'm growing so much more just because I'm passing this on to others. Teachers become masters at their, at, at their curriculum. It's the same thing as the devotion that comes through service. We see, wow, Lord, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to serve you in this way. I'm going to really need your help. I really got to work these things through. I got to, I got to learn some answers. I got to pray about these things. There's an intentionality that comes to service. So how do we live lives devoted to Jesus? We see the discipline of habit, the discipline of intentionality. We also want to talk about the discipline of hope. We see that in verse 27. Where he says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You see, there is a reward, and Paul does not want to be disqualified for it. You may have seen people disqualify themselves for it. They get involved, even pastors, even great preachers, even well-known people, or not so well-known pastors, I'm aware of them, give in to sexual temptation, get wrapped up in pornography, get wrapped up in greed, steer their ministries through authoritarianism, give them to violence or even despair, even alcoholism. You know, we see it happen. And there's a call to watch our souls. 
See, Paul's watching it unfold in Corinth as people move away from Christ into sexual morality, as they move into idolatry, and he doesn't want them to fall short. He doesn't want to fall short. I don't want to fall short. And you don't want to fall short. It's because the reward is sweet. It's a sweet reward. If we look at the, some of the writings of the Apostle Paul, he was really almost obsessed with this idea of a race that was to be run with an award that was to come. In Acts 20, 24, he talks about his race. I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. So he sees himself as being part of a, of a race. We see elsewhere in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul reflecting on his life at its end. And what does he say? He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. See the boxer. I have finished the race. You see the runner. I have kept the faith. You know, do you see the assurance that he has as he writes this? Do you want that, do you know, do you want that assurance? Knowing that there is a reward in the race? Look, where, look what he says. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. See, instead of focusing on the, on the award, what do we tend to do instead? We tend to focus on the difficulty, on the trial, the challenge, the obstacle that's right there. And when that happens, heaven just seems so dim. We lose the eternal because we get focused on the temporal. The job, the award, the money, the person, the retirement, the election, the football game, the win. But like an athlete, Paul can't focus on the difficulties. He can't focus on the world. He keeps his eyes on the reward. And that makes him able to endure. Remember, the reward is in Christ. And keeping his eyes on Christ, he's moving to where it is. And he has it, indeed, by faith. So on the day before a race, why would an athlete set aside the pastry or the pizza or staying up late? It's the idea of winning the race. The award that's there that causes them to endure. Well, we need that same vision of the kingdom of God. And so we persevere, that award. Why set aside these things? right here, right now. It's the same thing that motivated Jesus to persevere. Look at how he looked at his award and his perseverance in it. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising his shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Indeed, we see that Jesus is this pioneer. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Why? Because he ran that race first. And why did he go to the finish line? Why did he go to the cross? Why did he endure the suffering that he endured? For the joy that was set before him. He see, the, the award of winning his church to himself, of winning a bridegroom, of people he'd be forgiving their sin, of you, to see the joy of being in fellowship with you. That's the vision he kept, which kept him pushing on towards the end. And when we look towards our reward, what, what do we see? We see Jesus. We see God. We see 
the bride of Christ. We see the family of God. We see the love of God. We see the purification of sins. Sanctification. We see holiness. We see no sin. We don't even see a careless word or violence. There is a glory that is to come and it surpasses our understanding. It might be on the other side of suffering. Yes, it might be on the other side. But there's a promise of resurrection life. So have you thought about heaven recently? We should think about it. I mean, death is by itself a dark end when we realize the reward that is there. It raises up our hopes. It increases our love. It stimulates our faith. It stimulates our devotion. And it helps us to realize that the the race that we're in is much bigger than the things that we see around us right now. There is a prize for you, beloved. It has been secured in Jesus Christ. And so keep the wonder of Christ in your mind. Keep the wonder of heaven in mind. Let there be no greater love other than Jesus Christ. And as you love, let that love of Christ and devotion to him steer you. You will find that there is no discipline. No sacrifice will be too big to endure. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are thankful for our Savior, our Savior who has gone ahead of us. He has finished the race. He has won the reward. Father, as we believe in him by faith, Father, we have a part in that. It is holy by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we cling to him. Father, let nothing steer our eyes or our minds away from him. But, Father, by your grace, by your Holy Spirit, by your word, would you root our hopes firmly in him. Father, strengthen us for this. Strengthen those who might be going astray today and they know it. They see the lack of discipline in their lives. Father, direct their hearts and minds towards Christ. Father, for those who've never professed faith in Jesus Christ and they know that there's an aimlessness to their decisions, the actions they're taking, help them to see the glory and the wonder of Jesus who'd be there to give that reward and the direction and the life and the love and the joy and the hope that's in it. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to walk with you Send him upon us, bring us conviction, show us the truth of your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.